Hey, this is Joshua. Hey, how's it going? Hey, it's going really good. How are you doing? Oh man, I'm so, so good. <laughs> I actually have a coworker that used to say, so good, I can't even believe it, but it was always sarcastic. I actually mean it. I'm so good, I can't even believe it. We uh, we just got back from an amazing family vacation in the Redwoods. Uh, for those of you that are listening and are like, wait a minute, I saw a social media post about that like forever ago. We record probably, what, four weeks in advance or something like that. Uh, many, many. So, yes. Yeah, it gives us a chance to edit the audio and get it all set up and everything. So at any rate, yeah, we just got back. We had an amazing family vacation, capped it off by taking my youngest son to go see the finale of the World Athletics Competition in Eugene, Oregon, where people Olympians from all over the world were coming to compete in track. And we got to see the men's shot put finale. And he just had a great time. We both had a great time. I'm just, I'm so good. I can't even believe it. That's awesome. Good vacation is such an excellent thing. Oh, man, it feels wonderful. But, uh, you know, typically I'm Josh from Oregon and you are Josh from Missouri. But today I think we have to call you Josh from Illinois. Is that right? <laughs> I don't know if I want to be called that. But yes, indeed, I am uh, just north of St. Louis in Illinois at a week long coaching training certification course. I have uh, said a couple of times on the podcast that I am super passionate about helping associate pastors be excellent at what God's called them to do. And I wanted to get my coaching certification uh, so that I can be as equipped as possible to do that. And so I'm here in the middle of that right now. And uh, so I'm staying at an Airbnb and missing my family like crazy, but loving the training and the content because it's just been really good. So that's where I'm at. That sounds great. Yeah. Hey, I I know you didn't say exactly where you're at, but you're in Edwardsville, I believe, uh, which mm -hmm. is right by Collinsville. And shout out to anybody from Collinsville, Illinois. I lived there for a whole whopping nine months of my life graduated high school from Collinsville High School. So you are right back, right next to the world's largest ketchup bottle, which is Collinsville's claim to fame. So if you're ever driving through Collinsville, Illinois, go see the ketchup bottle. Yes, but. I uh, have promised that if my training, uh, which is a full week long, if I get out early on Friday, I am going to go and see the world's largest ketchup bottle. <laughs> All right, something to look forward to. But yeah, hey, so go ahead. Yeah, no, I was calling because uh, I think we talked on a previous podcast about doing an episode on the Enneagram. And yes, I, it's it's almost all I can think about. My family and I are talking about it. Everybody is like comparing their numbers and discovering things about themselves through the Enneagram. And so I think it's time we need to talk about the Enneagram. Excellent. Well, I'm glad we are because this is... Uh, something we posted about this week in the Witch Josh question was about both of our Enneagram numbers. But before we say who is what number, we should probably explain this idea of a number. So yeah, w explain this idea of an Enneagram number. Uh, 
I'm pretty new to the Enneagram. And so though many, many people have recommended it to me over time, I have only recently started diving in. And so uh, for any of the Enneagram experts out there, forgive me if I err in how I describe this, but the Enneagram is a very, very old kind of drawing, Enneagram just uh, meaning drawing of nine using Greek words, uh, a drawing of nine. and it Because talks- anything is cooler and more academic if you say it in Greek. Absolutely. Everybody should learn Greek for that very reason. You just sound cooler. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's it's a drawing of nine. It displays a number representing different personality types, but more than just personality types, because I think people have done like Myers-Briggs or they've done the what is that ISTJ, the, you know, the disc or whatever it is. And so people have done various personality tests, but the Enneagram is different because it doesn't focus on necessarily your behavior as much as it does kind of the underlying rationale behind your behavior, why you do what you do, what drives you from the inside out. And I think that's the the secret of the Enneagram or the, the, the beauty of the Enneagram is it really helps you get to know yourself because it really helps you understand the motivations behind why you do what you do. And so each number corresponds to one of those internal methodologies or driving forces, if you will. How, how was that? What would, you, what would you change about my explanation there? No, I thought that was good. The only thing I would add is one of the things I appreciate about the Enneagram is that it isn't static. It suggests not only this is your, this is your interior drive, it also speaks to your, how you function as a broken or shadow self or your false self. And it has some sense of movement. So if you look at an image of the Enneagram from each number, there are two lines going away from each number to numbers on opposite sides of the circle. And the idea is that, and again, I'm not going to say this well, but in your most broken or least whole moments, you tend in one direction, and in your most whole or most healthy moments, you tend in the other direction. So for example, uh, if I were an eight, I think I'm saying this in the right direction, I would tend towards five in my best moments and tend towards two in my worst moments. And so there's this sense that our sense of self and the way we function can have a sort of momentum or movement in them. Does that make sense? It does, but I think your description of eight was flip-flopped. I do think that that is true. I was trying to remember which one was the way you operate in times of stress and in times of wholeness, but... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. But this is kind of... There's not a lot known about the actual origins of the Enneagram, and so it kind of has this aura of mystery about it, if you will. And I think it's used in many other circles besides Christianity. And so because of that, I think that Christians who may be vaguely familiar with the Enneagram, or even the name Enneagram kind of almost sounds like pentagram or something like that. And so it's it sounds dangerous, right? Or it sounds like not something a Christian should be using. And so I think it's worth exploring that idea for just a moment, because 
I think there might be listeners out there that say, whoa, wait, wait a minute. I don't, I don't know about this Enneagram stuff. Yeah, no, the, I loved this. The author of the book that I am reading, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but Christopher Hertz, he said that as someone who grew up in a, I'm inferring something of a traditional evangelical kind of context, he said his first time looking at the Enneagram, he's like, my goodness, it looks like two demonic pentagrams somehow got together and had sex. Um, <laughs> and, and that about covers, I think, how it looks to the person who doesn't know what he or she is looking at. Yeah, absolutely. What And so what makes you feel comfortable using the Enneagram as a Christian? That's a great question. I think First of all, I'm going to operate from an assumption that all truth is God's truth. So if there is something true here, I am safe around truth. So that doesn't mean that anything is true, but it does mean that I, as a reasonably intelligent human being, in the context of reasonably intelligent other human beings, one of the valuable things to me is that this is something that catches not just my attention— but you, as a friend and as someone I respect and who is pursuing Jesus along with me, this catches your attention, and you think to yourself, oh, I see something valuable here. And so that brings me back to it. The same with it catches my wife's attention. So when a bunch of people whose spiritual lives I respect are drawn to this, it makes me pause and pay attention especially when it's the group of people that are whose relationship with God is inspiring to me. Mm. When those people say this is a tool that helps, then I'm open to listening. Mm -hmm. what, what about for you? Yeah, you're exactly right. I have also been similarly inspired by your own interest in it, along with, again, this is uh, something that Dean recommended to me. And Hi, Dean. <laughs> um, and various other people have recommended along the way as well. And my wife, Shelly, even recently was looking into it and was like, have you taken the test? Do you know what your number is? You've got to do this. We need to talk about this. So yeah, same, same for me in terms of being inspired by people I respect. And then I want to key in on, on this all truth is God's truth idea that you put out there, which is absolutely true. God, which means God is truth. Compatible with God. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I think science in its pure form is literally discovering the world that God created. Mm. And when we're doing that, we are we're learning something about the creator himself. And I think the same is true when we study a person or when we study humanity and when we we study psychology or the, the tendency of human behavior. This is also an opportunity to learn something of God. Now, it's also an opportunity to twist and, you know, shape things in ways that are ungodly and to come to some conclusions that are incorrect. So that's always a possibility as well. But I also think my evangelical heritage did not always focus as much on kind of this idea of know thyself. 
And, mm. you know, there's, there was a much more, uh, a stronger emphasis on know the Bible, know the word, which is all good. But there's also an element of know yourself. I think of this, I think of Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you that you do flows from it. That's the NIV. That, that mm. is, that's a great verse. And how in the world do you actually go about doing it? How do you guard your heart knowing that everything you do flows from it? I need to know something about my own heart. I need to know something about my own tendencies, my own, if I'm left to my own devices, what would I more likely than not do? And I think that's what I learned about myself through the Enneagram. I saw myself reflected in my number. My wife saw me reflected in my number. There was no question this described me. And it described me so well that it was fascinating and eerie that like somebody who doesn't know me, who wrote this without ever even conceiving of me, could describe me that well. Yeah, exactly. You know, years and years ago for seminary, I had to read part of Calvin's Institutes. And the one thing that has stuck with me from the very beginning, like the introduction he basically starts off by saying there's two essential kinds of knowledge, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Mm. And so there's this long Protestant tradition of seeing spiritual growth as the intertwining of those two foci of knowledge. And I think that's exactly what you're hitting on. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's something that we hit on a lot, honestly, in this podcast, because we're both kind of in that space of marrying these two ideas, if you will, knowing God and knowing ourselves. And as we as we do both together in our friendship, we are hopefully bringing together a full and complete walk with God. You know, more and more... I am coming to believe that we all are living with what Paul calls the flesh, what Richard Rohr calls the false self, and that a large percentage of the spiritual life has to be not peeling away the obvious kinds of sin. I think that's all the preliminary work that gives us the space in our lives to begin to peel away not individual sins, but the actual sinfulness, that is to say the taint of the state of sinfulness that has broken even my own self-perception. I'm not who I think I am. (laughs) Yeah. And it's something that I actually found myself about a year and a half ago, like actually thanking God for, I I felt called to become a pastor when I was 13. And I have lived my entire life since assuming that I was preparing for the pastorate. And all the years in between Bible college and finally going to seminary, I was asking God, oh, when are we going to get to this? I feel like you told me, don't go to seminary yet. And so when are we going to get there? Why why am I not doing this pastor thing that I feel led to do, that I feel passionate about doing? Why are we not there? 
And and then God started doing some work in my life, and, and I started learning some things about myself. And I realized that this shadow self that you're talking about mm. was, if I continued to live out of that shadow self and attempted to pastor out of my shadow self as a senior pastor, I would have done harm to God's church. My yeah. shadow self needed to be reckoned with, and I hadn't done that yet. And God was very much waiting for me to do some of that interior work that needed to be done before he could use me in the way that he wants to use me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to use my number as an example of this. But before we do that, we posted in our Witch Josh question for this week that one of us is a one and one of us is a six. And we encouraged people to take the test for themselves and post their number. But before I use my own number as an example, why don't you go ahead and tell us, which are you? Are you the one or are you the six? I am a one. And I was actually surprised to find out that you were not a one. I mean, a six also <laughs> makes sense. And so I I understand it once you say it. But if I had pegged you at all, I had pegged you as a one, just like me. It makes sense. And uh, I have taken Enneagram tests multiple times, and I almost always come out as a six, but one time I did actually come out as a one. So it's close. But going back to your idea of shadow self and how it can be complicated when you're in leadership or ministry which is why I wanted to say the fact that I'm a six. In a lot of tests, the six is titled the loyalist. And one important thing to know about the Enneagram is that the names are sort of stuck on by the individual testing organizations. You have to be careful because they are almost caricatures. Mm. Not There's a lot of nuance to them, mm -hmm. but... Uh, the six is often called the loyalist because a six is often marked by a strong commitment to another person or another separate leader, someone else who is forging a path ahead. And of course, all of my talk about loving being an associate pastor, it is not shocking that I am that number. But as you dig into the six, the reality is that the shadow side of the six has to do a lot with fear and fear of being unprepared, fear of trusting oneself, and fear of being able to allow oneself to properly respond to circumstances and coming out of all of that, that sense of loyalty, which looks for all the world like a virtue to everybody around you, it can even look like humility to everybody around you, mm. when in fact, it is simply fear masquerading as a virtue. Mm. And that certainly has been true of me. There are plenty of times I have avoided going out on my own taking a senior role, 
because there was fear involved and I was hiding behind someone else's leadership because I didn't trust myself and I didn't trust that God had adequately or could adequately equip me as a person. And I think God is has been leading me in a very similar journey to what you were just saying about dealing with my shadow self or my false self and coming to find a level of freedom outside of all of that. And even quite honestly, for me, this podcast has been a piece of that. There's no one over me in this endeavor that we are trying that is telling me what to do. And I have to be okay just striking out and saying, this is my thing. And it is very vulnerable and transparent feeling to me. And I can feel that instinct to run and hide that sense of fear. And doing this has helped me identify all of that. And looking at the Enneagram has given me language, sort of an interpretive grid to help me understand my behavior. Does that all make sense? It really does. And honestly, as I hear you talking about it, I can remember certain interactions around this podcast where I got the sense that, hey, man, are are you dragging your feet on this? I, I thought you were into this. And I think what I was encountering was you working through your own fear and anxiety over doing the podcast. Um, Not that you weren't excited or wanting to do it, but that you were literally wrestling through some of the emotions around it. And so it's, I'm learning things about you as you talk about it, which is awesome. Yeah, no, that's, you are absolutely correct. I can remember conversations where I could feel you wondering why I was dragging my feet. And that's exactly what was going on. I was having to process this exact thing, the shoot, it feels very vulnerable to be out here and telling our friends that we're doing this thing that nobody told us to do. We're just (laughs) doing it because we wanna. (laughs) That felt very vulnerable to me. Yeah. Uh, But what about you? Tell me about what you have seen in yourself as a one. Yeah, and I didn't, I'm glad to do that because I didn't want to leave you hanging. You uh, very vulnerably shared there, and so thank you for that. And I'll do the same. So the reason why I feel grateful that God didn't put me into pastoral ministry without having dealt with my shadow self is, so a one, as you said, the labels can be a little misleading, but a one is often titled the perfectionist. This is a person who wants things a certain way. They are very anxious about receiving criticism. And so in order to not be criticized, uh, one's tendency is to run ahead and get it all right and do it all perfect the first time so that nobody can come along and tell them the bad things that they've done. And they have this ongoing inner critic constantly telling them for themselves how bad of a job they're doing or how bad things are, or you didn't get that right, or you didn't get that right, or whatever it is. And so there's this constant inner critic that they're trying to silence. And so by the time somebody does come along and sit alongside and say, hey, you know, you actually could have done such and such better, or you missed the mark on this, it is really, really hard to take because, yeah, don't worry, I've already beat myself up 15 times, you know, since Tuesday on that. Um, and and so in order to 
stave off that criticism, a one works to perfect themselves or their their environment or whatever. And I'll get into some of the divisions of the Enneagram in a minute, because I actually found it really helpful. But to, to mm-hmm. go back to the bigger point about pastoring, I, in my tendency as a one, viewed Christianity as a thing you do or a thing that you perfect. And so going back to how I internalized, you know, you need to have a good Bible knowledge or you need to have a good prayer routine or you need to go to church or you need to evangelize or you need to like, right. These are the things, these are the steps. These are the the things you need to get good at. And if my prayer life wasn't where it needed to be, there was all sorts of guilt and inner criticism and shame over all of that. And I just hoped that nobody would notice because that was my, my biggest fear is that somebody would come and criticize my spiritual walk. And so mm-hmm. I internalized Christianity as something that you do or something that you perfect. And as God has revealed that shadow self and invited me to literally just dwell with him. And that this is the true mark of Christianity is, are you dwelling? Are you abiding? I'm reading this book and it actually, when we get to the thought section, my thoughts are going to come from this book by my favorite college professor, Dr. Rodney Reeves. He wrote a book called Spirituality According to John. And I'm reading about a third of the way through it. And he says that John's spirituality is really kind of boiled down to this one word, abide, abide with Christ. And the idea of abiding with Christ completely revolutionized my concept of what it means to follow Jesus. It's not something Mm. I do. It's not something I perfect. It's a place where I dwell. It's a place where I live. It's a place where I'm rooted, established, sustained. That's a very different thing. That's good. That's good. So so seeing yourself differently gave you a window into seeing all of Christianity differently. It did. It did. And I think I would have unconsciously imposed a works-based, even though my theology said differently, my practical, my lived-out theology would have accidentally enforced a very performance-based Christian walk in the congregation that I served. And I think that is actually antithetical to what Christianity really is. (laughs) And so I would have done a terrible, terrible job as a pastor because I would have missed it fundamentally. So, yeah, so the the shadow side, learning more about myself here, when you get down into the Enneagram, there's a, there's a couple of different ways to kind of subdivide your number. And some people really focus on the wings. And so if you're if you're a 6, you have either a 5 wing or a 7 wing. Whichever of those two has the higher score for you, is your wing. It's a way that you can kind of employ the the best qualities in that other side to temper your own expression of your number. Is that a good way to say that? Yeah, it's sort of the the numbers are all laid out around a circle and you can borrow from the number to your left or to your right for well or for ill. 
you're leaning into sort of the left side or the right side of your number, which puts you closer to the number either on your left or your right. Sure. And so I'm a I'm a one wing two, and twos are super helpful. They really focus on trying to help other people. So that's my wing. But there's another way of subdividing your numbers, which I actually found to be even more helpful, even if I really, really hate the terminology that goes with them. Every single number can be broken down into three smaller ones or three subcategories, and they all have the same names. These three subcategories have the same names in all nine numbers. So you could be a self-preservation one, six, eight, whatever. You could be a social one, or you could be a sexual one. And I really hate the name sexual whatever number. But so a self-preservation one is very focused on perfecting themselves. A social one is very focused on being seen as the model of perfection that others should follow. And a sexual one, which sexual really is more just you're oriented more toward that one-on-one dynamic with another person. So it's kind of a bonding category. Mm. Or I don't know if bonding is quite always the right word, but it's that one-to-one connection idea. And so they've sure. used the word sexual, which I think is a little bit misleading, honestly. Is it, it's almost more, because I haven't actually heard this idea. This is new to me. Is it more trying to capture the idea almost of intimacy or connectedness as opposed to the social would be more the big group kind of activity kind of thing? Yeah, I do think so. However, that desire or that uh, you know passion expresses itself differently in all of the different numbers. And so what might be motivated by bonding or something like that or one-to-one connection might not actually look like one-to-one connection, you know, in various numbers if that makes sense. Sure. So the the sexual one or this one-to-one one tends toward perfecting other people. And so I actually fall in the self-preservation one. I really want to perfect myself. I'm not really interested in being the model of perfection for anybody else to follow. I'm not really interested in trying to perfect a whole group or a whole society or something like that. I got way too much on my own plate trying to perfect myself and I got a lot of work to do. I'm always active. I'm I have a really hard time just relaxing and letting go and putting all the work aside that I feel like I've got to do to become perfect for myself. So it's interesting, actually, as a self-preservation one to to think through like, okay, well, then why am I doing this podcast? Because that sounds like a social one. I want to be seen as the model of perfection. And so here, let me put this all out there for everybody so that they can emulate me, which seems like would be the motivation for a social one. But that's definitely not my motivation with this podcast. And so it actually makes me a little bit uncomfortable to do this podcast because I feel like what I'm doing is exposing all of the ways in which I am not yet perfected. And I'm just, Mm. and so it's actually almost a good spiritual exercise for me to do this 
to really become okay with imperfection. I think I even said that in the parenting episode, right? Like, what are you learning as a parent? I'm learning to live with imperfection. And I think this this podcast is another way for me to learn to be okay with imperfection and to be in process and maybe to acknowledge that you might not ever arrive. One of the, I'll, I'll stop with this, but one of the things that really stuck out to me in a book that I'm reading, I can't remember if it's The Complete Enneagram by Beatrice Chestnut. I think it is. She, she said of ones, if the standard is not perfection, then what's good enough? I struggle with that question. Like, okay, I, if I can't be perfect and I acknowledge that, well, then what is good enough? Like, where do you draw the line? So anyway, those are my reflections, my shadow self and what I've learned about myself through the Enneagram. That's good. You know, the other thing that I have loved about the Enneagram is it breaks the nine types into three subgroups, the five, six, and seven triad, which is the, I'm hoping I say this right, the mind triad, the mm-hmm. eight, nine, one triad, which is body, and the two, three, four triad, which is heart. And I have found this very helpful for a couple of reasons. First of all, because there's this invitation in noting that you live generally out of this part of yourself. I definitely live out of my head. That is the the place I am the most natural. And seeing that division gives me the permission to live out of my head as a natural way of being while noting that someone like my wife, who is a two, is living out of her heart and that that is equally natural for her Mm. and that I don't need to ask her to live out of her head and she doesn't need to ask me to live out of my heart. I just need to do what is natural for me and relate to her valuing the fact that she lives out of her heart. I have found that way, that piece of this to be very, very helpful in some of my interactions with people who are different from me. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I've found, I think my wife has found it really helpful to learn about my shadow side. So you mentioned that I'm the body side. Well, the in that triad, that eight, nine, and one, the thing that we wrestle with is anger. And mm-hmm. my anger comes out as contempt or indignation or something to that effect when people around me are not trying to perfect all the things I'm trying to perfect. And so why is everybody else not running around frantically trying to make everything as right as possible? How are people relaxing right now? There is way too much to do to relax. And so it's opened some dialogue as a family for Shelly to be able to look at me and say, okay, you really can take a break. I know you know you need to be working on this. So how about you just chill a little bit? And in fact, we did this on vacation. We planned nothing about our vacation. We actually didn't have time to. And I don't I don't like to operate that way. We ran completely just off script. We just did whatever we wanted to, whenever we wanted to. And Which, I was- Which, by the way, for those of you who are listening who have never been on a vacation, 
with Josh from Oregon. <laughs> I have, and I am not convinced he enjoys the vacation as much as he enjoys the spreadsheets that come before the vacation. <laughs> I can imagine my wife listening to this podcast right now and pausing it because she's laughing way too hard. Um, my wife is a nine, by the way, and she's just like, yeah, all is going to be just fine. Everybody just needs to take a chill pill. Um, yes, that is my tendency. But, you know, Shelly was able to look at me on this vacation and say, we're not planning anything. And you're just going to chill out and you're going to be fun, dad. And so it was kind of a joke between us throughout the whole thing. Like, oh, I guess I'm just going to be fun, dad. Uh, but I was. I was able to just kick back and relax. And I think that's probably what helped the just everybody relax because I just wasn't so uptight. There was nothing to perfect. We were just going to have a good time and I was going to be fun, dad. So I'm growing through my Enneagram. That's awesome. Well, hey, I don't want to interrupt this. We could keep talking about this for a long time, but I know we got to get going here soon. So I just wanted to see if there were other thoughts that you had about other topics besides the Enneagram before we get going. Yeah. All right. So I teased this out already that I'm reading this book, Spirituality According to John by Dr. Rodney Reeves. Absolutely, hands down, my favorite undergrad professor He's now senior pastor at First Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas, and I love that. I mean, he's done uh, both professor and pastor kind of back and forth a few times. I think that's what I was drawn to about him. He was a professor with a pastor's heart, and that comes through in his writings, and I, I love all of his writings. And anyway, he gave some insights into the story of Lazarus that I never knew. And I, I, maybe you already know this and I'm going to be behind the times, but this was so cool. So obviously Lazarus had died. Jesus kind of delayed, even though he's like a day's walk away, he delays and he doesn't even show up until like the fourth day. And the women were responsible in that time for preparing the body and, and all of those things. But here's what I learned that I did not know. So all of the different spices, the aloes, the, the myrrh, whatever else that they used to prepare the body was meant to cover over, obviously, the stench of death, as was sealing up the tomb. But those spices and things really would only last about three days. But the mourning period would last much beyond that. And so the family would still be in town and they would still be coming to the tomb and they would still be mourning. So it was actually a disgrace for the smell of death to come out of that tomb. And so by Jesus waiting as long as he did, all of the burial preparations have long since worn off. And he's going to open up this tomb and expose this family to shame because the stench of death is going to come out. And so all of a sudden, it makes Martha's comment so rational. But Lord, he stinks. This wasn't just like, hey, I don't want to smell something gross. This is like her family's honor was at stake here. And mm. there's way more wrapped up in this. And so Jesus coming on the fourth day is, is just adding insult to injury. And so anyway, I just, I didn't know anything about those dynamics and I didn't know about, 
you know, the fact that these uh, things would wear off after three days or so. So this fourth day is actually really pivotal in the story. And so I found that insightful and I wanted to share it. That's awesome. I love that. No, I did not know any of that. I mean, what I'm basically getting from all of what you said is that death really stinks. It does. And that's actually the point, one of the points that he goes on to make in the chapter is just, you know, so often people wrestle with, what do we do with death? If God is a good God, why does death happen? And though he didn't say this directly, I, I feel like his heart resonated with mine. As, as I look at that question, I always ask myself, not ask, when I am faced with that question, I say in response, I don't know why death remains. I don't know why God chose for death to remain. And yes, he is the resurrection and the life and that, and death will be conquered once and for all. However, beyond all of that, this is the only God imaginable that would step off of his throne and enter into the grief, the suffering, the shame, the stench of death himself. Mm. And he wept over Lazarus's death. He died his own brutal assassination by a mob urged on by the powers that be. James Cone refers to the crucifixion as a lynching. He entered death in a really tragic way. And so I don't know why it exists still, but I'm willing to serve the God who would enter death with us. Mm, that's good. So I don't know how you like switch gears, but your turn. <laughs> <laughs> So I was thinking about, you know, bubbles and unicorns and things. Oh, good, good. This is a good time for that. <laughs> uh, no, I was thinking, so like I said, I'm, I'm at this coaching training. And one of the things that I, I think one of my biggest takeaways from this particular day, Zach Prosser, who is, works for Emerge Ministries and is leading this coaching training and just doing a phenomenal job he talked about the fact that whenever somebody comes to you with a problem, the problem is happening on three levels at the same time. And this actually kind of ties into our Enneagram stuff, but there's the problem they're having in their head. There's the problem as it translates into their heart. And then there's the problem as it translates into their gut or their core identity. So to give you an example of this, in a practice coaching session today, one of the examples that I used of something that I wanted to work on was the idea of marketing myself. When asked a series of questions, that really started to translate into, I care about marketing myself and the way that comes across to other people because people matter a lot. I care a ton about people. And that brought it from my head to my heart. And then pushing in with some more questions really brought me to this place of acknowledging that what's really going on is that behind caring about people, 
there is a sense of purpose, motivation, or drive that is very core to my being, core to my sense of self and identity that leads me to care about people and that therefore I want to connect with people. And the language that Zach used around this was that people walk in sometimes at best knowing what's going on in their head, what he called the presenting agenda. And that if we respond to people's presenting agenda, we may have helped them, but often we have missed what's really going on. Because at the heart level or the gut level, there is something far more significant, far more central to who they are, something that is going on beneath the surface that needs safe space to be addressed. And yet there are very few safe spaces where people are allowed to go beyond their thoughts to their heart and to their gut. And that that really is what coaching is. Uh, He called coaching a creative thought provoking space that allows people to achieve their goals. And just This combination of ideas of head, heart, and gut, this language of presenting agenda versus deeper agenda, and this idea of safe, creative, and thought-provoking space really all comes together to me as we are so often thinking about what does it mean to grow, what does it mean to be discipled, what does it mean to be transformed, that right there, there is a lot about how we grow and how we can help others to grow. Yes. That is such a great way to structure your thoughts going into those conversations. Okay, this is what's being presented, but there are other levels we need to get to. And just having them named and identified in advance is so helpful. That's awesome. Yeah, he calls this stuff your coaching OS, your coaching operating system. It's the things you go into the conversation knowing that allow you to do different things in the conversation. Mm. And uh, I find that wildly helpful. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, hey, I want to turn to the audience and just say, hey, come like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you're curious what your Enneagram number is, we'll put on our social media the the tests that uh, we recommend. Not that we're the experts, but hey, they're tests you can go take. And some well, sites- at least say they're the tests that helped us. Yeah, there you go. And some sites that you can go to to read more about your number and to start learning about this, some of the books that we've read, we'll put that stuff out there on our social media. So come find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, on the phone with Josh. We want to hear from you. We'd love to talk more about it. We look forward to continuing the conversation. All right. Well, are we on for next week? Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. All right. I'll catch you then. All right. Bye. Bye.